This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. We're here with Laurie Polatnik joining us on our program. Laurie, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Wonderful. Thank you so much for participating and joining us. Laura, you're someone that I wanted to interview on this program for a number of reasons. I happen to be familiar with a good amount of your work and I'm inspired by it and really energized by so much of what you're doing. And I want to get into that, but I first want to learn a little bit more about where you're coming from. What was your story, so to speak? Where did you grow up? How did it all start for Laurie Palandic? <laughs> Where did it all begin? Okay, I was raised in Toronto. I'm Canadian. And I grew up in a very classic North American Jewish family. What does that mean? It means that we were Jewish. There were four kids in my family. My brother's bar mitzvahs were more bar than mitzvah, if that resonates with anybody out there. I remember when I was eight years old, my mother sat me and my sister down and said, okay, your brothers have to keep going like we went to public schools but we went to the after school Hebrew school which we affectionately called Jew jail <laughs> which was very special and we all hated it so when I was eight years old my mother sat me down with my sister and she said you know your brothers have to do this they have to go on and have their bar mitzvahs but you have a choice you can keep going and have a bat mitzvah or you don't have to and I was like I don't have to do this <laughs> and they said no I said great then I was out okay my husband says in Chicago they called it the 13 and out club so my sister and I bailed out parachuted out and my brothers had to keep going all their bar mitzvahs and you know our Passover Seder seemed to get shorter and shorter every year I don't know if anybody here understands this scenario but before expansion the NHL hockey playoffs were always around Passover so the joke at our Seder was there weren't four cups of wine there were five cups there's the four cups of wine and the Stanley Cup <laughs> and that's a big cup there weren't four questions there were five questions because the fifth question was what's the score you know what's the score what's the score so we just wanted to finish the Seder but now with expansion it goes into the summer you know hockey is the national religion of Canada so that's basically how I grew up we weren't anti-Zionist but like I didn't know the words to cover you know if Israel was on the news maybe we'd listen a little bit harder and we were Jewish so that's my background and obviously something changed right. <laughs> I have to tell you when you fast forward this story years later when my mother is in Israel visiting me and I'm becoming more observant and, and I'm very committed to Israel and, and I'm becoming a, a very committed Jew. She was crying at one point and saying to me like I sent you to Hebrew school. I did my best with you. I said mom when I was eight years old you sat me down and you respected my decision about my future Jewish education. I said I'm 24. Can you please respect it now? She goes good one. <laughs> so briefly, Laurie, what would you say shifted between 8 and 24, between the Stanley Cup on Seder night and I would imagine Seder nights that looked a little bit different so, in your 20s? Yeah, because in the end, out of four kids in my family, three of us became very observant in different wow. ways and different avenues. So what happened was, out of the blue, my sister became an observant Jew. Like she suddenly, it was like, it seemed like one day it was Rocky Horror Picture Show and the next day it was Shabbos. Like, like what? If you would have listed all the crazy things that could have happened in our family, this wouldn't have even made the list, okay? This was like completely out of left field. And at first we thought it was a phase, okay? Rocky Horror Picture Show, Shabbos, <laughs> and tomorrow will be something else. And then we got worried and we thought, oh, oh maybe it's a... 
cult. And then we thought, well, at least it's a Jewish cult. At least she's not handing out flowers at airports. But then we realized that this wasn't going away. And if it is a cult, it's a 3,500-year-old cult. At one point, there was some sort of family or something. And my uncle was visiting from Montreal. And at one point, he said to me, hey, I heard your sister Miriam's in a cult. I said, yeah, like your grandmother. <laughs> now, I have to tell you, like, I don't know where that came from because, you know, two minutes before that, you know, I thought my sister was in a cult. And then I realized at that moment, like, what are we talking about? If everybody opens up their family albums and goes back, how many generations do you have to go back? In Canada, we have to go back two generations. Maybe in America, you have to go back three generations. And take a look at what these people look like. They look like pretty committed Jews. And for thousands of years before, what happened? What happened? So Jews don't leave Judaism because of what they know. They leave because of what they don't know. And when our graduations out of Judaism becomes our, at 13 years old, instead of what it's supposed to be, which is our graduations in, now you see the mess we're in. Anyway, so my sister started, even though it was a negative thing in my family, it became a factor in my family. It was in the air, but I was working in radio at the time. I was very into my career. I was a writer. I studied communications. I was a copywriter. And, and then everything shifted because I won a national award for a Christmas commercial. <laughs> so Jews are very good about Christmas. You know, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. That's Irving Berlin, okay? All the most famous Christmas carols are written by Jews. I won't ask you to sing the jingle. <laughs> it wasn't a jingle. It was just a commercial. It was a very funny commercial about Santa Claus shopping and double parking his sleigh. So I found myself at the top of the CN Tower receiving a national award for a Christmas commercial. And my career was like booming. So what did I do? I quit my job and I went traveling through Europe because I figured like I got my degree. I've got my work experience. I have my award. And now I want to go see the world before I get married and have children and have a mortgage. My mother's an artist. I was exposed to a lot of art and culture growing up. And I wanted to see the Mona Lisa. And I I wanted to see the Statue of David. I wanted to see the Renoir and the Pissarro. And this was not a time when people were doing this. This was the 80s, not the 70s or the 60s. <laughs> but I got my backpack and off I went. I figured like, who knows, you know? And before I went, I actually said to my sister like, oh, you know, like, I'll, I'll, who knows when I'm going to see you. So let's go up for lunch or something. My sister by this time had gone to Israel for a year, came back and she was very religious. And she said, you know, why don't you spend Shabbos with me? You know, because she used to go away every weekend and spend Shabbat in the religious part of Toronto and then come back. And I said, I'm not spending Shabbos with you. And she goes, if you really loved me, you would. Okay, oh, so God. fine, fine, fine. I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> off I went with my sister and it was not a very positive experience, I have to tell you. I really felt like I was in jail. And at one point I said to my sister, nice for you, not for me. And so I left and fast forward, I'm traveling through Europe and I'm going to all the beautiful galleries and all, seeing all the arts and the Jeux de Palme in Paris floating through the greatest French impressionist you know, collection in the world. Under strange circumstances, I ended up in Israel. I had not planned to go to Israel, but obviously God had other plans. Kind of like you over here, we have something to talk about. And I found myself one late night, you know, rainy night in the spring at the Western Wall. And there was one man standing there because it was raining there was nobody there and it was dark and the wall was lit up and I as I'm getting closer I realized that I know this man I met him at that Shabbos table that my sister dragged me to before wow. months before in Toronto and I went up to him and I said hi remember me and I reminded him so this man ended up being Rabbi Mayor Schuster who was the famous man who stood at the Western Wall for many years day and night and he's responsible for getting kids involved in Judaism and classes and connecting them and I'm probably the only one in the history of Mayor Schuster who went up to him <laughs> instead of him coming up to me. And I was staying at crazy, scary Arab hostel. He ended up bringing me to a neighborhood where I stayed with a couple of single girls and used that as a home base. And when I left Israel, I remember like a year later, I got something in the mail, like I, an opportunity to go back and to study on something called the Jerusalem Fellowships. And it's because somebody who I met there remembered me. 
And in that year that I was away, it was like, it was probably there all the time. But every time I seemed to open the newspaper or the radio or the television, it was either about Israel or the Jewish people. And of all the countries I had traveled to, I couldn't get Israel out of my heart and soul. So when I had an opportunity to go back, I jumped at it. And I went back. At this time, I was working for McDonald's restaurants. Okay. Okay. Christmas commercial, McDonald's restaurants, rabbi's wife. Do you see the pattern? Okay. So <laughs> it's a pretty standard trajectory, I think. Yeah. You know, it's a very straight line. So I went back to Israel. It was supposed to be a six week program. And after the six weeks, I have to tell you the first time I was there, at one point I felt if I don't leave now, I'm never going to leave. I want to live here forever. And it didn't make any sense. I didn't know what I was feeling. So I left. But a year later when I went back and then about four weeks into the six week program, I felt the same feeling like, and this was long before there was a birthright. Right? This was like the precursor to a birthright. I had the same feelings. If I don't leave now, I'm never going to leave. I want to live here forever. But this time it made sense. Why? Because it has something to do with the history and destiny of the Jewish people, about why we're here. My growing love for Israel and my growing understanding of what it means to be a Jew. And it was all coming together at the same time. It was very powerful. So at the end of the six weeks, instead of going back, I didn't go back. I didn't get on the plane. I had a lot of questions and I needed to work them out. And I figured if I'm going to work it out, I'm going to do it in Israel because I'm kind of a to the source person. You know, you call up to complain in, in a company. I don't want to talk to the schlepper, answer the phone. Give me somebody, don't give me your supervisor. Give me somebody who owns this company. All right. Like, <laughs> so I figure if I have questions about Judaism, it's going to happen here in Israel. I'm going to get my answers. So I figured I'd stay and talk about my answers because well, I, I didn't want could have, would have, should have in my life. You know, I saw people who got into careers and got into a life and they had regrets. I, I didn't want them with those regrets. I was like, let's work it out now. So I stayed to work it out and I ended up staying one more week. I always said like one more Shabbos, one more Shabbos, one more Shabbos. And I slowly became more committed, more observant, but I'm, I'm an idealist and I, I didn't just want to connect to this. I wanted to help change the world because the Jewish people were orlegoyim, were a light unto the nations, that if the world is going down, it's our fault because we're not where we're supposed to be. We're kind of like the oldest child. The oldest child has more responsibility than the other siblings and they're supposed to be an example to their other siblings. And they have a special relationship with their parents because they were the first. I love all my kids, but my first, she changed my life forever. So the Jewish people, we're like the oldest child. It comes with responsibility and we're supposed to be an example, but it also means we have a special connection to the Almighty. You know, I want to get into that because I know this passion and this ethos really is, is what animates you in the work you're doing now and the work you've been doing for decades already. Before that, first of all, you mentioned that you sometimes are able to get the owners of companies on the phone. If you have any suggestions for calling customer service, uh, I would love to hear it. <laughs> you just keep asking for the next supervisor, <laughs> the next one, the next one, until we get somebody who actually has some power. I think, I think that may only work for some people, but... Uh, <laughs> that's why like Judaism, you see, we don't have intermediaries. That's... Like if somebody comes to my husband... It's interesting because I think we often say that a person needs to be able, regardless of the circumstances they're in, we always have to take some step ourselves. And I, I just see that in your story when you approached Rabbi Mayor Schuster at the wall, he didn't approach you. And so there was this inner stirring that while on the one hand, you were maybe trying to suppress, on the other hand, you were giving... You know, I, I'm, giving you, I'm giving you a very Reader's Digest version of my story, but it was much more complex and much more intense. That year that I stayed in Israel after I didn't get on that plane, and I started an aerobics business in order to make money as I needed to like money. So suddenly I'm in the aerobics business, I'm in Israel, I'm on my journey. It was not a straight path. It was not like all roses and lollipops. For the first time in my life, like amongst my friends and my peers, like, I don't know, my friends would tell me, I envy your life. I want your life, Lori. Like everything always kind of worked out for me, whether it was socially or my profession. And people would, would literally say like, I envy your life. But there were times where I knew that there had to be more. There were times, literally, I would wake up in the middle of the night 
And I would think like, okay, this is good. You know, you got the boyfriend, you got the career, you got the this. And so then what do you do? What's coming up? I get married, have a kid, have, good, have a dog. And then I die. Okay. I just felt like, okay, it's nice. And according to the magazines, I'm on track. But I, I felt disappointed. I felt like there has to be more. And I didn't know what that was. And I, the last thing I thought it was go, I was going to find it was in Judaism. Because the Judaism I was raised with, with a lot of I was raised with, are these like the Bar Mitzvah Club and the 13 and Out Club and the graduation out of Judaism and bagels, lots and cream cheese. Like my husband always says, if a Jew goes into a bookstore looking for a book on spirituality, are they more likely to pick up a book on Buddhism or Judaism? A disproportionate amount of Jews are in cults and are leaders of cults and are getting into weird things because there's a drive within all of us. It's a drive for God. And that's why we, it doesn't say in the, in the Torah anywhere that we're, we're smarter than everybody else. Why are we at the forefront of every ism? Feminism it was all Jewish women were at the forefront. Communism, because there's inside us, we know we are here to make the world a better place, tikkun olam, and that we are God's representatives here to make that happen. We don't understand it and we're not cognizant of it, but we're driven. Jews are driven. You know, when you make a poll or like a survey, so when they make a survey, they, you know, like you have a, a question and this percentage say yes this percentage say no and this percentage has no opinion so you know the jews are either yes or no okay we're not the no opinion people like we have opinions two jews three opinions like we're we care jews care and if it's not going to go into god and meaning and changing the world it's got to go somewhere so it's go, it's going to go into business and it's going to go into other places well certainly you've been translating your energies in the last number of years but really longer than that into some very novel and exciting project that are designed to really bring some of these messages to the broader jewish world and i want to get into really what might be called your magnum opus or your uh, life passion at this point which is the the jewish women's renaissance project but what were you doing in the decades or the years leading up to that and then share with us a little bit of kind of how you got to where you are now okay so after i stayed there in israel for the year and i came back to toronto and, and i then i went back again so i met my husband my husband was a rabbi. I married a wonderful, wonderful man. He's originally from Chicago. So we got married in Toronto because that's where my family was. And then we moved back to Israel. He had been there already for 10 years. We moved back to Israel forever, four and a half months into forever. God had other plans. And we ended up moving back to Toronto. And my husband and I, for the next many, many years, worked in communal work. We worked in communities, doing outreach in communities. And I was having babies. Okay, I had five children, 10 years. And, and believe me, if you would have asked me before, am I going to have kids? I would have said, I'll have one. If it's the greatest experience of my life, I'll have two. Okay. So now I have five kids. And at one point I said to my husband, see these kids? I love them, but really not me. Like it's, you know, I'm not the happy housekeeper type. I love them. I'm totally devoted to them. But it was really big, a big stretch in terms of my own journey and my own character. So I always say I was a stay-at-home mom for the first 13 years. But while I was staying at home, I started writing books and I started teaching. Why? Because I said to my husband, like, the women, they need to hear this. And, they, and somebody has to teach them that. So he finally says, well, why don't you do it? So I started teaching and it turns out that I have God gave me a gift for it. I started teaching. I started getting sort of a little bit of a following. At the beginning, it was around my dining room table because I've got all these babies. And then I started being asked to speak in the community. And then other cities started asking me. So as we were working communal work, I started sort of becoming a little bit of a, a personality in the Jewish world. Why? Because there's a lot of rabbis. Rabbi, 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 and Lori. So what <laughs> happened was women need role models. Women are relationship beings. And for sure, when I was on my journey, when I had issues, women's issues about the women's role in Judaism, 
and a rabbi would start explaining to me, I'm like, save your breath. I'm not going to hear it from you. Give me a woman who understands where I'm coming from and what I'm talking about, because it's very nice that you're spouting this and spouting that. Give me a woman. Well, I started becoming a little bit popular. And after about 13 years in Toronto, where my husband and I built up a, a community called the Village Shul, it's, you know, all the synagogues that we hated growing up. We didn't want to perpetuate this. So we started a synagogue. It was crazy. Okay. We didn't know what we were doing. We were young and naive. And we started with five families and with the same connection that we all had. And none of them were observant. But the idea, like, we want something different for our kids. We want a place to learn and grow and non-judgmental and where you understand why you're standing. Because when I growing up, we went to synagogue like twice a year. And it was kind of like Simon says, your goal was not to be sitting when they're standing and not to be standing when they're standing. Okay, but obviously there's more to it. So we always say, understand why you're standing. Understand. Ask the questions you never got to ask in Hebrew school or you asked them and got really bad answers. And we all kind of grew up together. First, it was in the basement of another synagogue. Then it was in my living room. Then it was a storefront. It was funny. The storefront in Toronto, is at Bathurst and Eglinton. It used to be a cheese store. So we got this storefront and we like opened up shop there, but we couldn't afford a sign. So for many first months, it said an adventure in cheese. Uh, some people used to call us Jews for cheeses. Jews for cheeses. <laughs> That's right. Then we finally got a sign. We were the village shul because in the area that we opened up, it's called Forest Hill Village. And so it was like village hardware, village bakery. So we were the village shul. And it really, it became a big thing. And after a while, you know, my husband raised millions of dollars. We bought a gas station. We put up a gorgeous building. And then my husband said, listen, we did it. So let's give it to somebody else to run and let's help another community. So we moved to the state. And that's what we started doing. So after I moved to the States, I started getting booked more internationally because it's kind of like the big show there. So doing video blogs and I started becoming more well-known. And as I was going to all these communities, I saw the communities were not going in the right direction. I'd come home to my husband and I'd go, this is, this is terrible. And I would get like crazy job offers, you know, because again, there's a lot of rabbis, but there's not a lot of women prominent in communities and leadership. So I would come home and say to my husband, you want to be the chief rabbi of Costa Rica? <laughs> with maids and so obviously I'm not moving to Costa Rica I'm, I'm writing books I'm speaking and everybody's like I'm like, that's very nice but I, I want to help these communities what can I do so I gathered seven other women together so women who had been coming to my classes who I knew and different you know in the because we were at this point we we're living in the Washington DC area so I gathered them together and I said let's think of something we can do that is the home run for the Jewish people that really can make the difference. And one of the women, we went to Utah to plan what we're gonna do. Why do we go to Utah? Because one of the women owns a beautiful place in Utah. And why were there eight of us? Because her plane held eight seats, okay? So now we're known as the Utah Eight. So we flew off, this was 2008, okay? The beginning of 2008, we fly off to Utah. And before I went with them, I actually went to somebody, salted with them, somebody who does this for businesses, somebody who is very, very, successful in taking an eclectic group of people into a boardroom and somehow through a process coming to a common mission, vision, and purpose. So I said, can I do this for a nonprofit? She goes, absolutely. So she told me what to do and I'm taking notes before I went. And she's at one point I was like, I'm not so patient with process. So I said, I said, can we just bottom line this? She goes, Lori, if you're patient and you do what I say, I promise you magic will happen. So, okay, off I went. She goes, trust me. So off I went and I led these, these women through this process. And some of them are like me, like, can we just bottom line this? I said, if you're patient, and <laughs> we, go through, we do this, magic will happen. And I'm telling you, magic happened. We got in touch with our, our core values and what would our life look like 
if we lived them? What would our family look like? What would our community look like? What would the world look like? And even though we were an eclectic group, right? Half were very staunch Democrat, half staunch Republican, half were, were Sabbath observant, half were not. Uh, some were wealthy, some were not. Some, some, one was single, one was an emptiness. Everybody was at a different stage of life because I wanted everybody's voice. And when we came to that, we found the congruence, the, the values that we share, which are really sourced from the Torah itself. These are universal values. So how are we going to take those values and bring that to the world? So we came up with and brainstormed, we came up with, we must have come up with a hundred ideas. And we had big sticky notes all over her beautiful place and we advocated for our ideas. And this was over a three and a half day period. And three ideas rose to the top. This idea, taking women to Israel for an immersive transformational experience and to bring them back to their communities and to do it in Pukov, like a rocket. I have never in all of my years of Jewish education and communal work have never been involved in a project that took off like this. It captured everybody's imagination. Now we didn't just start a women's organization and decide to do something for women because we're a bunch of girls. Okay. Now we wanted the home run idea. And I told them, don't think about money. Just think big. It's not how much money do we have. It's what are we going to do now? Let's find the money. You're a woman, you inspire a family. And if you can inspire enough families, you could inspire a community. And if you can inspire enough communities, you can change the world. Because in our work in different communities, we saw that where the women are at is where the community will be at. That often when a man, and I'm going to generalize, but when a man starts his, his Jewish journey, is excited about his Judaism, and his wife is not, we got a problem. But if the woman is excited and the man is not, we don't have a problem. We have a solution. That a woman in general is just smarter when it comes to sharing and bringing people and seeing them as individuals and bringing them to a place where they need to be. And the most important decisions a family will ever make are primarily in the hands of women where we live. You want to move to another city and your wife doesn't want to move. Are you moving? You're not moving. <laughs> where we live, where we send our kids to school, who we socialize with. These are not just decisions for now. These are decisions that literally will affect generations. And they're primarily in the hands of women. I tell the women on the trips, I say, the school you pick for your kids is not who your kids will be. It's who your grandchildren will be. These are major decisions. So if we can impact the woman, it's just a faster, more efficient way of reaching the Jewish people and bringing them to a place where they need to be so that all boats will rise. So the, it's a free trip, not including airfare, in partnership with existing organizations. And we partner with Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, like work for the Jewish people. Come on board. We'll help you go from good to great or from great to us. So first year, we brought 300 women. We had three groups of 100. And it was a 10-day experience back then. Now it's eight days. It's been refined. And they came from Canada, United States, and Mexico. And it was fantastic. It, it was unbelievable. It was incredible. And when we went to try to raise the funds, everybody was like, you're right. It's the women. Like the, the most important person in the family and the most underserved. So then the next year we brought 600 women. And then we brought 900 women. And then Israel's, we want to talk to you. Who are you? What are you doing? So we, we, uh, I met with them and we had a series of meetings and they said to us, okay, double your numbers, get into Eastern Europe and we'll help back you. So I flew to Moscow and St. Petersburg and Hungary and Greece and Turkey and Berlin and we doubled our numbers and we got into Eastern Europe. Nine years later, 11,000 women from 26 countries 
in partnership with 200 partner organizations, have had this incredible, profound transformational experience. The, oh, I believe in birthright. Birthright is fantastic. I'm, I'm all about it. Like, it, I think it's fantastic. And all the campus programs and everything you're involved with, it's great. But I saw more and more when I spoke at Yale and I spoke at American University and I spoke at Brown that if you impacted a 21-year-old boy, you impacted a 21-year-old boy. But he has a 19-year-old sister and a 14-year-old brother and parents. But if you get the mother, you got the whole family. What have you, what have you seen to be kind of the, the primary accomplishments to date with this program? Well, first of all, in most cities, we have more than one partnering organization. At the beginning, like everybody came on board, like in one city, there'd be one, like Toronto had one, and then you know, LA had one. And now in Toronto, we have seven different partnering organizations and the organizations resisted bringing on other partners because they wanted to be the exclusive. And I tell them there's no exclusives with the Jewish people, that we're all in this together. One of our founding values is if we work together, we can do so much more. We're not opening up JWRP centers in cities. We're not doing that. We want to help existing organizations do what they do better and faster. So one of the beautiful things that has come out of it, and it's, it's a process, believe me, because I've been working in Jewish communal work for three <laughs> decades. So it's a mistake when organizations on the ground look at other organizations in their city as their competition. We tell them they're not your competition. They're your partners. They just don't know it yet. Mm. So begrudgingly, they started working together. Why begrudgingly? Because they used to look at each other as partners. We're competing for constituents, we're students, for funding. You know, when the Jewish people stood at Mount Sinai, it says we're one people with one heart. And then God gave us the Torah. God, like I have five kids and they're all different and in every way, but they love each other. And when my husband and I see that and that they're one and they're, they've got each other's backs, we want to give them the world. But when kids are like yin 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 each other, like we're like, this is not why I had you. So God looks down at the Jewish people and we are different. We're not looking for uniformity. We're looking for unity. What can we rally around? We can be sitting and from here to eternity talking about our differences, religious differences, political differences. It's going to get us nowhere. It actually is going to get us somewhere. Somewhere very bad. So let's focus on what unites us and let's build on that. And that's what's happening. Eclectic Jewish organizations who normally don't work together are starting to work together under the umbrella of the Jewish women. And why? Because of the golden rule. Whoever holds the gold rules. Like we say, like, you don't want to come on board, so we're not going to fund you. You do your own trips, it's fine. Like, it's okay. But so they begrudgingly like, okay, in order to get the funding, because we provide 85% of the funding, the local organization puts in 15% of it, and we provide 85% of it. 22% of our budget currently is being covered by the Israeli government. So we still have to raise a tremendous amount of money. And when I started this, I was not a fundraiser. <laughs> of the eight women, nobody wanted to raise the money, you know, like, duh. So I said, okay, I don't know, I'm not a fundraiser, I'm an educator, but the first three letters of fundraising are fun. Turns out it's not always so much fun, but miraculously, uh, you know, it's, it's always a challenge every year because of our growth. But, you know, it's really the next stage of my personal growth. God says, fine, okay, first you're the mom, okay, now you're the local teacher, and now you're the, the international teacher, and now you're the author, and now you're the, the personality out there in the media world. Now, welcome to your next stage of personal growth. It's interesting. I was going to ask you, how has this experience changed you? I'm like, I, there's no words to say that. So what happens is God puts opportunities in front of you. You don't have to take them. But if you're willing to step up, the miracles I have seen that it's, again, I'm not, people say, what's your fundraising plan? You know what my fundraising plan is? I'll, I'll let you in on it. I go to people with money and I ask them for it. <laughs> That's my plan. Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. I'm not strategic. I'm not, I'm not, I don't have any background in this. I'm passionate about the cause and I ask people to back it. 
And I have to tell you, when people say no, and it's rare that they say no, they may not give me what I ask them, but how could you say no to this? This is the greatest thing happening in the Jewish people today. I've all the data, I, it's on, everybody's on board. Like, how could you not want to share this? When somebody says no, I don't feel bad for me. I feel bad for them. I don't have the merit to be part of this. Come on, come on board. You want to share this. So I have grown tremendously through this. I've met some amazing people. I've really connected and, and, and it's opened me up to understanding what it really means that the Jewish people can work together. It's been a journey. There's a lot of challenges. There are times I'm sitting in airports and I'm crying because I had a bad experience and somebody didn't just say no. They said no, not nicely. And then I buy myself a Starbucks and I pull up <laughs> my boots and I wipe my and I brush myself off and off I go again. And it's because of the results. I'm telling you, Women come up to me on the trail and they tell me, except for having children, this was the greatest experience of my life. This saved my marriage. Lori, this changed everything. We don't just have data, we have lives. And I'm telling you again and again and again, and even though it's so hard what we do, it's so much work and it's so challenging. I always feel every time a woman comes up to me and tells me, or she contacts me later and tells me the difference it made that now her kids are on, on track Jewishly and that for the first time in their life, they're doing this, this, and for the first time in their life, they love being Jewish and they care about it and they've become committed. Every time I hear a story, I feel it was worth it just for you, just for you. Now, I know that you've started to expand this project out even more broadly, maybe crossing gender lines and allowing some of the men in these women's lives to experience some of the same opportunities. What's that been like? So for the, our trip is called Momentum. Momentum. And when the, the women come, we highlight the mom in Momentum. And now we have trips for husbands. And so in Momentum, we highlight the men part of Momentum. So how did we get into the husbands? From the first year, the women kept saying, oh, my husband has to hear this. My husband has to see this. My husband, my husband, my husband. Now I want you to appreciate we're not a trip company. It's a one-year journey that includes the trip. This one-year journey begins when the women apply in a local partner in a city, in a country, and they create a cohort. And that group comes on this incredible transformational immersive experience and then they have this experience together and they come back together the challenge with birthright is these kids are at a stage of life where they have this experience and then they scatter these women are from a community have this experience shared experience and go back together and then the follow-up is easy to do because you have the local partner on the ground and the classes and the and experiences and the celebrations you do together and you support each other in this journey so from the beginning my husband and my husband and my husband so I went back to my board I have a board of directors and I said they're asking for trips for their husband <laughs> they said to me Lori focus we are a women's organization and then we started hearing not just from the women, we started hearing from our partner organizations. They said, we're having trouble engaging the husbands. And then we started hearing from the husbands. I had one guy from Atlanta who wrote to me and he said, Lori, on behalf of all the JWP husbands of Atlanta, I'm here to tell you we're behind our wives. We don't understand what they're feeling and what they're thinking. Please do something for us. That was it. I went back to my board. I wrote a proposal and they said, fine, if you can raise this amount of money over the budget, we'll let you try. So the first year the men came, we had two buses of guys. I think it was like 84 guys. And Charlie Harari, who I'm sure you know, is a, a tremendous Jewish personality, a personality in the Jewish world. And he, at the time, was a venture capitalist and a real estate lawyer. And I was after Charlie, but he's got to do this. And he resisted doing it. For two years, I worked on him. For two years, I worked on the board. Finally, everybody came on board and we tried it. And it was blow away amazing. It was unbelievable. First of all, I have to tell you, compared to the women, the men are so easy. <laughs> I always knew men and women were different, okay? But I had 200 women leave one day and 84 guys land the next day. It was like an anthropological study in gender. <laughs> So for men, they just are so easy to please. You give them meat, you give them beer, they're good to go. For Low women, like, it's a little bit more complex. 
at the end of the day, okay, a man, he doesn't remember who his seatmate was. For a woman, who she sits beside on the bus is a very big deal, okay? So the men are, are easier and they're all warmed up. Their wives are pushing them out the door. Go to Israel, go learn, go experience. They know they're going back to a wife who's excited. The women on the trip are like, how do I bring this home? Like, what, what am I gonna tell my husband, my kids? They, they're going back to a wife that's cheering them on. So they're all warmed up. And I'm going to tell you one story that really hit home for me that we have to keep bringing the husbands. And this is a growing part of what we do. So one night, I think the second night of the trip or the first trip, the microphone's being passed around. I always thought like, I, you know, the women are very emotional on the trip and like they're learning and they're experiencing and they're falling in love with Israel and they're falling in love with their values. And, and it's just incredible what happens. And I was like, how are we going to reach these guys on a deeper level? And I've never seen guys so emotional in my life. It, it's really it's almost unsettling. And they're grabbing the microphone, sharing. We're at a winery and they're all sharing their Jewish past and their lives and their experiences. And one guy from Dallas takes the mic. He goes, guy, when I was about to turn 13, our rabbi told my parents, I can't have a bar mitzvah. Why? Because I'm dyslexic, which is ridiculous. Of course, you can have a bar mitzvah. And he says, guys, listen, I'm not religious, but it's a, a rite of passage for a 13-year-old Jewish boy to have a bar mitzvah. And all my friends started having bar mitzvahs and I didn't have a bar mitzvah. So Charlie looks at me and I look at Charlie and I knew what he was thinking. I'm like, okay, hold on. I get on the phone and I make arrangements and I tell Charlie Ron. Charlie takes the mic. He says, guys, tomorrow morning at dawn, we are marching up Masada and we're giving him a bar mitzvah. I arrange for a Torah scroll to be there and the whole thing. Okay, so they make all the arrangements. The guys go up. They have this bar mitzvah. It was like unbelievable celebration. The men were taking pictures like it was their own brother's bar mitzvah. <laughs> and after the ceremony... This guy takes the mic and he says, guys, when I was turning 13, the rabbi told me I can't have a bar mitzvah and I was devastated. But if he would have told me, hold on, wait 30 years and you and 83 brothers are going to march up Masada and you're going to have a bar mitzvah in the oldest synagogue in the world at the top because guys... I could have waited every day. Amazing story. Laurie, what do you think is next for JWRP, for you? What's the next chapter, having accomplished so much? So there's a lot going on. Every movement has different arms. The, the grassroots part of our movement are thousands of women all over the world, and now their husbands speaking the same language and making change in their lives and their communities, engaging with Israel, embracing their Jewish values, and taking action in their communities. So I believe there are different arms to this movement. One of the exciting new ventures is bringing Israeli women into the movement. Movement. Like, how could we leave Israeli women behind if we're making an international movement? So we started bringing Israeli women onto the buses that are going to leave their families for eight days and have this experience in their own country. And they're tough, 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 these women, like Israelis, they're unbelievable. And I'm telling you, this is the breakthrough we've been looking for. So it, def it changes our women, the women who are coming from the diaspora, because a lot of times people come and the only Israeli they meet is the bus driver or the guy checking you in at the hotel. They meet other Jewish mothers. They Like all these women, how could it be that a woman from St. Petersburg and a woman from Barcelona and a woman from LA and a woman from Tel Aviv in 24 hours become sisters? Because we have the same dreams and values. We want the same things. And once Israelis start opening up to see them change, they literally at the beginning are tough, 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 tough. And at the end are crying in my arms. They said, Lori, you, you've changed everything, Lori. One of them said to me, do you know what a 180 is? I go, yes, we invented that. that <laughs> phrase. They said, I see everything differently in my own country, my Judaism, because they come on as Israelis and they leave as Jews. And they, I look at American Jews differently. Everything has changed. They said, you showed me my country through the eyes of the neshama, through the eyes of the soul. And so this is a growing movement that we have, that we believe we have the secret sauce to perhaps bring unity to Israel. That is so fractured, it's such a fractured society that we could possibly 
inevitably bring them together under the umbrella of women, that the possibility and whatever happens in Israel will, will reverberate throughout the world. So this is something that is, is growing part of our movement, Israelis. And we have a lot of exciting things also coming up. We are talking about targeting specialized trips for educators. You know, if you inspire women, you inspire a family. If you inspire a teacher, you inspire classrooms. So we've had not a small amount of women who have come on the trip have been teachers and they come up to me, go, Lori, you didn't just change me and, and my family and my life. I'm a teacher. I'm going to be a very different teacher. I'm an inspired human being now. It doesn't matter what the teacher is teaching. If they were an inspired teacher, my kid would learn. So the idea is, could we create a generation of inspired teachers and what that could do for our kids? The opportunities are great. We did a, a trip for women in fashion. If you influence people who influence society, so influence those who influence others. We're, we're having a media trip coming up in partnership with the Ministry of Tourism. Women who are in, on a social platform have 40,000 or more people following them. So we want to do a trip for them. Because so, if you influence them, you influence Wow. You're starting to catch on what we're doing. It's yeah. very strategic. Beautiful. Well, I look forward to hearing the results or watching the results of some of these incredible ventures. And Laurie, it's been an absolute pleasure having the chance to speak with you, learn about your personal background and how you're really translating for what you've experienced in your own life to give that over to the generations of women and now men and families around the world. How many countries is JWRP operating in now? 26 countries. I look forward to seeing 30 and 40 and watching where this incredible movement goes. Can I just let people know that if they Please. want more information, go to our website, jwrp.org. You can remember it as Jewish Women Are Pretty, okay? JWRP.org. <laughs> and it's a portal not just to find out about us, but there's videos and there's data and there's, of course, the application for anybody who's interested. Thank you so much, Laurie. A pleasure. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.